So, good morning to you all. Lovely to see you. It's a slightly easier morning in temperature-wise, isn't it, as we slip away out of August into <coughs> September. We'll be talking about Christmas in no time at all, won't we? <laughs> it, there is, no, I've decided... I'll tell you, the background to that comment by Lynn is we were in a service leaders meeting early this week. And I was playing Mr Grumpy. And Andy was asking me a couple of questions. And I said, well, the simplest thing is to cancel it. And she goes, what? Cancel it. I go, Christmas, cancel it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've brightened since then, you'll be glad to know. So we've been on, on, a, on a rise. OK, so we're looking at Jonah 2. And... Um, I don't know if you've noticed in the uh, news sheet uh, that Brian produces, from next Sunday, we're starting prayers in the Bible. And that runs through to about mid-October, I think, uh, to the next Mission Sunday, isn't that right? Um, and although we never intended it like this, I've ended up with a uh, Jonah 2 as the, the scripture for today. And I think this is a wonderful prayer from the Bible. In fact, it's probably one of my favourite prayers from the Bible. So this is part, an early start to the series in September, I think is what we're doing today. Two weeks ago when I was here, um, I spoke on James 5 and the topic of patience in suffering. And I suppose it's, it's coming partly out of that sort of thinking. So it's, a, it's a related theme, I suppose, um, as hopefully you'll see. And I've called it, I think I'll be up there, won't it, like a prayer from the depths. And it's just a reflection, as I say, on Jonah's prayer. Remember, he, 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 he prayed this having been swallowed by a large fish, or probably a whale is probably uh, more likely, and also having spent three days and three nights stuck inside this large fish. So I don't know how you'd feel if that was you, if you'd been inside a large fish. But it certainly is, if you think about where Jonah is, it's a prayer from the depths, isn't it? I'm using that metaphorically, but also literally, because that's where it is with Jonah. But it is a prayer, a cry to God out of the deepness and the darkness and the difficulty of life, of which none of us are, are unfamiliar, although often in different ways we have experienced that. I think it's a simple and beautiful prayer, passionately cried out, cried from the heart by Jonah. It's not some polite request of God. It's not, and I don't get me wrong with this, it's not sometimes in our pray, prayer meetings we can be quite polite in our prayers, you know. Uh, it isn't that sort of prayer. It's a, it's a cry of desolation uttered by a man who has become very much aware of his own mortality. In fact, it's a depth of emotion echoed by that Psalm 130, uh, which we saw in that video. Out of the depths, I cry to you, the psalmist says, Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. But I also chose this text knowing that we were going into a, a month of prayer in this church starting again in the beginning of September. I think Jonah can talk, teach us quite a lot about honesty in prayer and also passion in prayer. Um, especially when we're facing tough times, when we've got big challenges coming up and we don't know what to do. And let's cry out, not just from our heads, but from our hearts. Our God is not a God who can be overwhelmed by the rawness of our emotion. Not at all. We can might be individually sometimes with others. In fact, it's my experience that God often meets us in those places, those places of pain and vulnerability when we're very honest with God. So it's my hope as we uh, reflect this morning on Jonah's prayer 
that we'll be able to take something of it out into our individual and corporate prayer time for this coming month of September. There's certainly much in the life of this church and certainly much in the, in the world at large that we need to be crying out to God for at this time. And I know as English people, and I'm a stereotypical, typical English person, I think, um, we're not renowned for our passionate displays, all right? But let's make sure our requests of God, as I say, are coming this month, informed not just by our heads, but by our hearts. Now, this story of Jonah, I'm sure, is one you know well. If you remember in chapter 1, his rebellion in the first chapter is that he refuses to do what God asked him and go to Nineveh. And then by chapter 2, he finds himself stuck in the belly of a big fish. As I say, just try and imagine it. It's, it's, it's a place of total darkness. It's a place down in the deep where he could only really wait for his end, really. If, stuck in the, if you end up in the tummy of a whale, you probably wouldn't be too hopeful, <laughs> even though remembering Jonah. Um, all he's going to end up doing, is, it looks like, is going to come fish food for that big fish, and that's going to be his end. But it was in that desperate situation where he no longer had anywhere to run, but he finally turns his attention to God. And I think that's really key. He has no longer anywhere else to go, and finally he turns his attention to God. And he experiences an experience both a, a repentance through doing so and rededication of his life to God, through which God gives him back a hope and a future. So Jonah's journey is a, is a journey we can all identify with, I think, but it's a journey sometimes from re rebellion to resurrection and restoration. And it takes him through a very pivotal centre, which is repentance. And we've, Lynn led us in a prayer of confession a little bit earlier. That's very so pivotal as well. I imagine Jonah expected to die in the sea when he was thrown off that ship. If you ever got thrown off a ship in the middle of a storm, they didn't have life jackets then, did they? So I guess he thought that was the end. A lot of people didn't even swim, actually, in, in, in a lot of times. But he woke up inside of the belly of a large fish, and he realised in that that somehow God had graciously spared him for a while at least. As with the prodigal son, whom Jonah in his rebellion very great, greatly resembles, it was then his awareness of the goodness of God that made him start to reflect on his ways and how he needs to maybe correct his ways. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Romans 2, verse 4, and uh, he says, do you, show do, do you show contempt for riches... Rich for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realising that God's kindness leads you towards repentance. So, as I say, this is a story we can all learn from, as it's a road on which we all at times need to travel if we are really serious about seeking God in prayer. So, first of all, let's look at Jonah's cry of distress. In verse 2 he says, In my distress... I called out to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called out for help, and you heard me. You listened to my cry. Jonah's prayer is born out of affliction, not affection. He initially cries out to God because he's in mortal danger. He's in real trouble. Not because he delighted in the Lord, but because he recognised 
he was in a very difficult place. But having said that, I think it's still better we call out to God compelled by such motives as that than not pray to God at all when we are in difficulty. If you think about it, it's doubtful whether any of us always prays with pure and holy motives anyway, for the desires of God's will and and ours are frequently quite different. But in spite of the fact that he prayed, Jonah still wasn't of one mind with the will of God. In chapter 1, he'd been afraid to do God's will and he'd rebelled against it. And now he wants God's will simply because it's a way out of his troubles. Many people are more likely to cry out for God in this way when they finally are at their wit's end, when they finally recognise they cannot save themselves. But how sad it is that we can go for so long, we can cling on for so long to our own will and our own self-determination rather than being willing to come to our gracious God in repentance and faith. In, verse one, in chapter 1, verse 9 of Jonah, he describes himself as a Hebrew, a worshipper of the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. Finally now, in his hour of need, he turns back once more to the God who alone can save him. How much better it would have been for Jonah had he maintained his faithfulness and trust in God from the start and obeyed the word that was given to him. Instead, so much trouble has come upon him and upon those around him as he's increasingly incurred God's judgment and disciplined. In verse 3, he says, You hurled me into the deep, into the very hearts of the seas. The currents swirled about me and all your waves and breakers swept over me. For Jonah, it wasn't the sailors who'd thrown him into the sea. It was God. You hurled me into the deep. Your waves and breakers have swept over me. When Jonah said those words, he was finally acknowledging God's righteous discipline. And again, the writer in the Hebrews 12 uh, speaks in these ways. My child, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as his child. If you look at that passage in Hebrews, it seems we can have several options when we are faced with God's discipline in our lives. We can despise it and fight against it. We can be discouraged and faint before it. Or we can resist it and invite in time ever stronger discipline as well. Or we can submit to it and mature and grow in faith before God. It had been Jonah's folly that had brought him to this fishy end, as it were. And yet it was God's righteous discipline, motivated by his enduring love, that now seeks to bring him to his senses. To start with, Jonah, like we often do, initially ignored God, he, normally, he, he fights against God, he runs away from God. But finally, thankfully, he yields to God, to God's good and perfect will. He turns to God with empty hands, empty hands of repentance, where you, we, we bring nothing save ourselves. And he places his hope once more in the promises of God. He renews his belief in the character of God, the God of Israel, who has been revealed to him in the Holy Scriptures. 
In verse 7 of our reading, he says, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayers rose to you. Jonah, by remembering, is turning once more towards the holy temple of Jerusalem, as it were, turning once more towards God. He's actually claiming a promise we actually find in 1 King 8, where Solomon, at the dedication of the new temple in Jerusalem, asked a particular favour of God. And the favour he asked was that when a prayer or plea is made by any of your people Israel, each one aware of the afflictions of their own heart and spreading out their hands towards this temple, then hear from heaven, from your dwelling place, forgive and act. And that promise of God's forgiving, good forgiveness is a promise that we today can receive also, not by turning, spreading out our hands and turning towards the temple in Jerusalem, but simply by turning once more towards Jesus, who is God for us in Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jonah's prayer from the grave is a reminder to us all that in this life it is never too late to turn to God in sincere prayer. And by doing so, like Jonah, we make a decision to re-establish our trust in his word and for him to become once more the bedrock of our lives. So that decision, that confession, is central in this passage. And yet once, once he's made that decision, it doesn't, you know, Jonah doesn't just come, just come out of the, the fish and turn up on the beach. You know, he, he makes a decision to turn. He comes to God in repentance and faith. But let's remember, he's still in the dark belly of that fish. His situation, in one sense, hasn't changed. Yet his perspective has. As he took that step, as he made that decision to repent and to look towards God once more, trusting in him completely, uh, and now willing to wait patiently upon him. Verse 4, he says, I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. Jonah's prayer out of exhaustion, out of the depths of the sea, as it were, allows him to hold together both the understanding of why he had been banished from God's sight in the first place, alongside the firm hope that he yet would be able to look with his own eyes upon the holy temple. Let's not forget that our trials in life taken to God in repentance and faith, keep that door of hope open. And then those times where we have to endure the darkness and the difficulty of life, that door of hope is so, so important. The psalmist wrote, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And that wonderful little image, isn't it, of a lamp. I don't know if you had a paraffin lamp, a little lamp, not like a big flashlight. It only lights that pool around just where you're now walking. Right? Just so you can see. You can't still see how you're going to get out of your difficulty, but you, you can see where your next step needs to, needs to fall. If we cast our eyes up and look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, of our salvation, but even though we might remain in the storm yet for a while, yet we know that day will come when the trial and the testing will lie behind us, and we will be able to look back and see how God has used even our folly, even our sin, 
for his glory. Peter said, put it like this, he says, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. Jonah's prayer is an example to us of a response to adversity, whether it was caused directly by our poor choices or not. Again, again, Paul in Philippians. So don't, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. A response that which one more, once more opens the door of hope and faith. So we, along with Jonah, can declare those wonderful words that salvation can be, become, comes from the Lord. Jonah had had a near-death experience, the feeling of going down into his own grave, as it were. But it is from that dark, dark, dark place that he sees the good will of God for him. And it is then from that place, still in the whale, still in this fish, but it's from that, that change of perspective, he then says this, verses 8 and 9, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord, he says. He can see now how foolish he has been to place his trust in worthless idols, in whatever form they came, including himself. He can see now the importance of turning in worship to the one living God, from whom all salvation comes, and therefore from whom the only real hope can ever flow. He can see now the importance of following up on the vows he's made while he was in the depths, as it were, reminding us also that we must take care not to offer God empty promises in our times of trials, only to then quickly forget them once we're in a better place. For Jonah, we don't know what those vows were, but I think we probably can guess, because the remainder of the story takes us on from that beach eventually, where he gets spewed up by the whale, on to Nineveh, and on to deliver God's message of forgiveness and hope to those who live there. Jonah can now say with confidence, even while still in that smelly belly of that fish, salvation comes from the Lord. That is the ground, that is the rock on which he now stands. The realisation that he could never save himself anyway, for none of us can. Again, the psalmist, the Lord is my rock, the Lord is my fortress, the Lord is my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold. Salvation is of the Lord. That statement is the central declaration at the heart of Jonah's prayer. Right there in the middle. In fact, if we think about it, it's also the central theme of pretty much all scripture as well. And finally, that section ends with the Lord commanding the fish and Jonah gets vomited up onto dry land. That's probably a pretty gooey end, I should think. But anyway, he's alive. Jonah's prayer. Jonah's prayer is a prayer from the depths. 
prayer of despair. It's a prayer from a place of desolation. But I think it does provide us with one of the most beautifully simply, simple models of prayer in the Bible, especially when we are in a similar uh, difficulty. It's a prayer I think any of us can simply relate to. I think it's a prayer that any of us can learn from. It's a prayer of repentance and faith, cried out of the darkness. And it was one that by the grace of God was heard and answered and that led Jonah into a place of hope. A time where he would literally see a new dawn as well. It's a prayer where Jonah finally acknowledges his sin and chose to take that to God and ask for his forgiveness. Just as we can continue to do today in Christ. Taking our sins to the foot of a cross. Trusting in the name of Jesus and the work of Jesus. Knowing that we can lay down our sins there and leave them there. Walking away. Freed people. Freed men. Freed women. So as we journey this month, in the month of prayer of this church, I pray we might keep something of Jonah's example before us and at times be willing to come to God not just with our heads but with our hearts too but the last slide which may be up there now lovely yeah I thought this all sums up this prayer quite well that's just a nice little fun picture as well it reminds us that this story is not really about a big fish no matter how the big fish fish may look he may be a really big fish but it's not about the fish. And actually, it's not really about Jonah, actually. Not really about Jonah at all. We can learn from Jonah. It's about God. A great God. A big God. A God whose grace, whose love, whose mercy and compassion are overwhelming. They're immense. They are beyond us in many ways, but they are there for us. God is awesome. And he reaches out his hand of grace and forgiveness to all who would turn and follow him in simple repentance and faith. Maybe Paul, when he wrote these words in Roman 8, had the picture of the fish in mind. You have this adversary, this huge mammal. I am convinced, he said, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, so I'll put in neither whales, I have a little addendum there. Neither present nor future, nor any powers, height or depth, right down the bottom of the ocean, doesn't matter, you might be up on the moon, or anything else in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And it's interesting, when we look at our Bibles in Romans 8, that's the end of Romans 8, uh, because we, the way it's paragraphed, our Bibles, we don't often see the next verse after that. Right. The next verse is verse 1 of, nine, of chapter 9. And put, Paul emphasises what he's just said. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I think that's part of what he's saying. He just wants you to hear. You know, here's the apostle, but he still says, you know, I speak the truth in Christ. This is real. This is true. I'm not lying. So, the last word to Paul. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction, but do, do, do be faithful in prayer. Amen.